Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. Uh, please open your Bibles to the book of Joel. We are continuing our series in the book of Joel. And we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 2, verse, verses 28 through 30, 32. So if you use social media, I do. Um, I don't post a lot. I'm mostly just, I'm silently just reading what other people are posting. So just so you know, I'm, I'm watching. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but I do follow, the majority of the people that I follow are believers, uh, whether it be pastors from other churches or theologians or, you know, just generally speaking, I follow mostly believers. And uh, if you, like me, have social media and you've curated your social media to have uh, a lot of believing voices, then you probably read something like this today. Uh, I, I mean, on Friday, you probably read a lot of it is finished, right? That, that's one phrase that I saw a lot. Uh, today, one of the ones that I saw the most was without resurrection, there is no Christianity. Without resurrection, there is no Christianity. And I, I totally agree. I totally uh, say amen to that. And in fact, um, the passage that Doug brought this uh, as we open our gathering today is, an, is a passage that I wanted to bring up uh, as well. It, you know, God, through the Apostle Paul, agrees with, the, with this statement, right? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be mis, misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ. Whom he did not raise, if this if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if dead are not if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So clearly without the resurrection, without the resurrection of Jesus and without the resurrection of the dead, there would be no Christianity, right? It would just be a really nice guy that lived a really good life. Some might even say a perfect life. And then he died and he just stayed dead. And, and now we just try to imitate him because he was a good guy. Obviously, that's not Christianity, right? Christianity is Jesus is the son of God. And he came and lived a perfect life in obedience to his father, in obedience to the law of God. He died for our sins. But the work was not complete until he rose again. And his resurrection was God's way of vindicating him, right? God's way of saying, God's way of putting his seal of approval in his son Jesus and saying, he is the one. I am accomplishing my salvation through him, and that's why I am raising him from the dead. So the phrase is, without re resurrection, there is no Christianity. Well, let me, let me try uh, my own 
tweet. Let me try my own uh, little phrase. I would say, just based on today's passage, I would say that without the resurrection, there is no pouring out of the Spirit. Without the resurrection, there is no pouring out of the Spirit. And yeah, maybe I should not be a, I should I should not be a Twitter. Uh, um, celebrity or whatever, because my, my tweets are just not as catchy. But the point here is that the pouring out of the Spirit, right? When Jesus sent His Spirit upon His people, upon the church, it would not be possible if Jesus had not risen from the dead. And so uh, today we look at a passage that talks about the pouring out of the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of God upon all flesh. And so before uh, we read it, we're not going to read it quite yet. Why don't we pray? And then get a little bit more into this idea. God, we thank you for giving your son Jesus. Thank you for his perfect life. Thank you for his perfect obedience to you. Thank you that he died for our sins. Thank you that he was the perfect substitute. Thank you that our wickedness, our unrighteousness was placed upon him and his righteousness was placed upon us who believe. And thank you, Lord, that our Lord Jesus did not remain dead. But he rose again. He was vindicated by you, Father, as your chosen one, your appointed king. And thank you, Lord, that he gave us the Holy Spirit. Thank you that for those who believe in you, for those of us who call on your name, your Holy Spirit has been poured out. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be the one teaching us today, that as we look at this passage, as we look at your word, you would teach us by your Spirit, Lord, that you would guide me by your Spirit to say the things that you want me to say, that your Spirit would glorify your Son, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. So we, we have been studying the book of Joel. And just to give you a quick summary of the book of Joel, so far we have seen that it is a book in which Yahweh, the, the covenant name of God, the Lord, also translated in multiple uh, uh, translation as the Lord, he communicates to his people that this invasion of locusts that they are experiencing and these famines and, and this drought and wildfires that they are experiencing, God communicates to them that this is actually a punishment for them, that this is actually, in a sense, the day of the Lord for them and that they are not obeying God. They are not obeying the covenant that they made with God at Sinai. Right? Remember that when God delivered them, he brought them to Sinai. He gave them the, the, the Ten Commandments, and he made a covenant with them through Moses. 
And so the people disobeyed God. And basically all of this suffering that they were going through, the locusts, the fires, all of it, it was because of their disobedience. But also remember, and, and this is the title of the series, remember that the judgment that God was sending, it was actually for the salvation of the people. God in his mercy brought this judgment upon them so that they would realize the need that they have for him. God on his, in his mercy brought this judgment upon them so that they would be ready to receive his call to repent. And so he calls them to repent through the prophet Joel. He calls them to, to fast, to mourn, to, to do all of the signs of real repentance. He calls them to render their hearts, not their garments. But then he promises, he tells them what is going to happen if they repent. He tells them what's going to happen if they return to him. And what is going to happen is that he is going to bless them richly. He is going to restore everything that the locusts ate. He's going to multiply the fruit, the produce, everything. He's going to send the, the, the early and the late rains. And above all, as we saw, he is going to send them the teacher of righteousness. And then we saw last week that this teacher of righteousness is actually talking about Jesus. Because even though they thought that their biggest need was the rain, even though they thought that their biggest need was for the produce to continue to, to, to sprout, their biggest need really was for someone to teach them righteousness. For someone to teach them how to live righteously before God and not only that, their biggest need was for someone to actually make them righteous. They needed for someone to come and transform their hearts so that they could continue in relationship with God. And so we see that this the last week section in verse 27 ends with a very important promise. He says in verse 27, And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. So God is promising that he is going to restore his presence with his people. And so I want, to, I want us to dig into this idea of God's presence a little bit more. So, If we go back in history, God created Adam and Eve. God created humanity. And the way that God created humanity and the way that God designed humanity, he designed us in such a way that in order to thrive, in order to be fully humans, we needed to be in relationship with him. We needed to be in his presence. And so that's why Adam and Eve are right there in the garden in God's presence, right? It says that they walked with God as, as you know, as someone walks with someone, with, with a person. They were with God, in the presence of God. They were thriving. But then as we all know this story, they disobeyed God. They ate of the fruit that God told them not to eat. And so what happened? Their relationship with God was damaged. They were kicked out of this garden. And their perfect relationship that they had with God was marred. It was interrupted. 
And from that moment on, because of their sin, humanity has had this gap between us and God. We, we've had this separation. Even though we are created to be in God's presence, even though we are designed to be with God, because of our sin, we are separated from the presence of God. And so the good news is that God had a plan and it's not a plan that he came up after Adam and Eve sinned. In fact, this is a plan that he devised even before the foundation of the world. And this plan was to restore humanity to a relationship with him. This plan was to once again indwell with the creatures that he made with humans. And so this plan continues to unfold throughout the story of the Bible throughout the Old Testament. But there is one thing that we notice, particularly in the Old Testament, that God's presence is limited only to a few people. That God's presence is often limited to a few places. Not, not that God is, you know, not that God can't be anywhere. Of course, we know that God is omnipresent. He can be anywhere and everywhere. He can be wherever he wants. But God decided to manifest his presence only within certain places and only with certain people. So, for example, we see that God appears to Abraham and he talks to Abraham and he makes a covenant with Abraham. And in fact, it says that God walked, you know, when they make the covenant, they split the animals and God walks between the animals, you know, making himself uh, bound by his covenant. Um, we can think of, of Jacob, who is Abraham's grandson, right? He, when he is at Bethel, he falls asleep and he has this dream, this vision in which he, see, he sees this stair going into heaven and angels going up and down. And he says, this is where God is. This is, this is where the presence of God is, right? And then we go forward in this story and, and eventually Jacob has children and they become a nation and they go into the land of Israel. And then we see that once they become slaves in Egypt, God appears once again through in, in, to Moses through, through the, the bush. And so he sent him to go deliver his people from Egypt. And then what happens when, when God is delivering them? Well, God is showing his presence and his power by sending all of these plagues. And he himself goes to kill the firstborn of all of Egypt. And then as he is leading them out, it is God who is leading them out through the cloud of smoke and then the, the, right, the column of smoke and the column of fire at night. So it is God's presence. God's presence is with them. He is guiding them. He is leading them. Eventually, God takes them to the mountain, to Mount Sinai. And God's presence right there is very, very visible to the point that the people are completely scared out of their minds. And they do not think. They do not even want to be with God at the time. They are so scared of God's presence. But Moses is up there in the mountain and, and God gives him the commandments. Um, and one of the things that God instructs Moses to do and the people of Israel is that they would build a tabernacle. And so this tabernacle was a tent, a, a mobile tent that they could, you know, as they were going through the wilderness, they could pitch this tent and God's presence would be in there. But once again, it was not 
available to everyone. I mean, yes, if you were in the camp, God's, you, you knew that God's presence was with you, right? But it was not like you could personally speak with God. If you wanted to continue in relationship with God, well, you had to go to the tent. You had to offer a sacrifice for your sins to be forgiven. And there were only a few people that could actually enter into the tabernacle. And then we think of Moses. Moses was actually one of the only few people in that time that had the spirit of God with him. And at some point, remember that Moses is growing tired of the people. And so God, God gives a provision of saying, okay, gather 70 men or, or 72, I believe, and I will give my spirit to them. And so only 70 come, and there are two that are left behind in, in the camp. And so the spirit comes on these people, and they start to prophesy. But then the two that were left back in the camp, they also start to prophesy. And so Joshua, who is jealous for, for Moses' sake, he's like, hey, look at those guys. They are prophesying, and they're not here with us. And Moses' response is, this is, this is a paraphrase. I, I, please forgive me. But Moses' response is something to the extent of, I wish that all of God's people would have the Holy Spirit. I wish that all of God's people would have the Spirit of God. So right there, Moses is recognizing that it is not perfect. It is really good. God is in their midst. God is in the tabernacle, uh, or his presence is, is manifested in the tabernacle. And God, God's Spirit is with Moses. And God's Spirit is with this, these 72 elders. But Moses knows that there is something better. Or Moses wishes that there would be something more. That God's presence would be with his people. And so eventually, you know, they enter into the promised land. Solomon builds a temple. God's presence continued to indwell in this temple. We hear of a few people that are, uh, that are, that the Spirit of God is with them. For example, when Saul was anointed king, the Spirit of God was with him. But when he disobeyed God, the Spirit of God left him. And then the Spirit of God was with David, right? So we have few examples of people with whom the Spirit of God was, but again, it was very limited. Not everyone could have this kind of access to God. Not everyone had the kind of relationship that Moses and David and, and even Saul at the time had. Not, not that they were... Uh, not that they had the short end of the stick, because at the time, it was... It was really good for them. They were the only nation in the world that could actually have God in their midst. But looking from this side of the cross, we know that it was still not great. Right? Like oftentimes I talk to people that say, man, I wish, you know, I wish I would have been like with the Israelites when, when the mountain was, you know, the clouds and the thunder were coming from Mount Sinai, or I wish I would have been one of the Israelites when, when God opened the Red Sea, or, you know, when, when God sent the plague, or even people say, man, I wish I would have been one of the disciples, you know, in the presence of Jesus, or I wish I would have been alive when Jesus was alive uh, here on earth. No, you don't. We have something much better. We have something much greater. That was good at the time, but what we have now is so much better. Saying that, it's kind of like being in college 
and saying, man, I wish, I wish I could go back to elementary. No, elementary was good at the time. But now that you're in college, you, you don't want to go back to elementary. Unless, I mean, unless you're like an engineer or something and the classes are just beating you up. Um, so anyway, continuing with, this, continuing with this story, the presence of God is limited, but then God does something amazing that he had been planning before the foundation of the world. At the beginning of John, the Gospel of John, John 1.1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. He's talking about Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us and dwelled among us. Literally, he pitched his tent among us. The presence of God was now fully revealed in his son, Jesus. God himself was walking on this earth. But even then, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, I am baptizing you with water, but he baptizes you with the Spirit. Jesus, before ascending into heaven, tells his disciples, I am going to baptize you with the Spirit. The disciples are eager for the, for the kingdom to be uh, restored to Israel. And Jesus says, wait, I need to send you my Spirit. Even before Jesus died, when he was telling his disciples about his death in John 16, I believe, he tells them, it is better for you that I leave. Because if I do not leave, then I won't send you the helper. But if I leave, I will send you the helper, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. So eventually, Jesus ascends into heaven. He is exalted at the right hand of God. And then on the day of Pentecost, as the disciples are together, God's presence comes upon them. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. And this is in direct fulfillment of the book of Joel. Let's look at Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So this passage is directly quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost. 
Remember, the Holy Spirit falls upon the disciples and they start speaking in foreign languages, in tongues. And the people who are coming from all over the world are understanding them. And so some people say, these men, these men are drunk. But Peter says, no, 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 these guys are not drunk. What is happening is that what the prophet Joel said is being fulfilled before your eyes. And he quotes this passage. And that I didn't realize until, uh, until this week, so forgive me for when I preach Acts 2, I didn't realize that the sermon in Acts 2 is really an exposition of Joel, or at least this particular passage. Like Peter, I, I thought that Peter was mostly just using this passage and then, and then kind of going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And in a sense, he did that. But there is a sense in which he is actually uh, preaching through this passage of Joel. He is telling them how the promise that God made to the people through Joel is being fulfilled in the coming of the Holy Spirit. But like I said earlier, without the resurrection of Jesus, there would be no pouring out of the Spirit. So if you, if you will, can you turn to Acts 2 and, and keep, your, uh, keep your finger in, in Joel, because we're going to go back to Joel as well. But I just want to show you how in Acts, Peter connects the resurrection of Jesus with the pouring out of the Spirit. So in Acts 2, starting in verse 23. Well, actually, verse 22 for a little bit of context. So he just finished quoting Joel. And in Acts 2, verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before, him, before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. That's what we just read in, in Psalm 16. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And notice here the progression of his resurrection, his exaltation, and the pouring out of the Spirit. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out 
this that you yourself are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Do you see how the resurrection of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus, were prerequisites for the sending of the Holy Spirit? So, in a sense, we could say that the fact that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us today is an apologetic of the resurrection of Jesus. Right? It, it's often been said that the church is an, uh, uh, an apologetic for God, right? Like, if you want to know if God is real, then look at the church. Well, I would add to that and say if you want to know that the resurrection is real, then look at how the Holy Spirit is at work within his church. If you want to know that the resurrection, is, the resurrection is real, then look at the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Look at the supernatural work of the Spirit within you, and you can have confidence that Jesus rose from the dead. You can have confidence that Jesus was exalted and was seated at the right hand of God. You can have confidence that Jesus is king. That he is reigning right now. Because we have the Holy Spirit with us. Because he sent the Holy Spirit. So why does this matter? What's, what's, what's so great about having the Holy Spirit with us. Well, there are three main implications for this that I want to share with you. One of them is that, like we read in Ephesians 4, the fact that Jesus resurrected and the fact that he ascended means that he gave gifts to the church through his Holy Spirit. So the fact that Jesus resurrected and ascended and sent his Holy Spirit means that he has given to each of us who believes in him a spiritual gift. And so this means that if you want to serve God, if you want to serve the church, if you want to build the church up, if you want to work for God and for his kingdom, in the Holy Spirit, you have everything you need to do it. In the Holy Spirit, you are fully equipped to serve God. So next time you're wondering, oh man, you know, what, what can I do to serve God? What can I do to serve my church? Well, maybe the first question that you need to ask yourself is, what is my spiritual gift? If I truly believe that Jesus resurrected, that he ascended, that he gave gifts to the church, then what is the spiritual gift that he has given me and how can I use it for the building up of the body? How can I use it for serving my fellow brothers and sisters 
in Christ? How can I use the power that he has given us in his spirit for his glory? Like I was like I was saying earlier, like some people say, man, I wish I would have been in those times when when Moses opened the Red Sea and, and when the tabernacle and all of that. But the point that I was trying to make is that now that we have the Holy Spirit, we have God's presence with us. We have God's presence within us. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't get any better than that other than when Jesus returns and we are in, you know, in his eternal kingdom, in his presence, uninterrupted, face to face. But before that happens, this is the second best, the second next best thing we have, which is the presence of God within us through his Holy Spirit. And so we need to realize the, the, the beauty of this promise that he made to Joel or to the people of Israel through Joel, but that we can also claim in Christ. So going on that same idea of having gifts, notice back to uh, Joel, notice how uh, Joel describes the pouring of the Spirit. He says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So notice, it's not just a, a limited giving of the spirit, like it was with the elders that helped Moses or the people that were uh, equipped to build the tabernacle, but it is a pouring out. It is this giving of without measure of the Holy Spirit. And it is not limited to a few people but it is on all flesh. The Holy Spirit, now through the work of Jesus, through the resurrection of Jesus and his exaltation, is available to all people. And what is the result? That your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall, see, shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants, in those days, I will pour out my spirit. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, only a few people had the authority to speak on behalf of God. Only a few people, like Moses, had the authority to mediate between God and the people. But in the new covenant, now that we have received the Holy Spirit, there is a, a sense in which we are all prophets. In that now we are ambassadors of Christ. In that now we preach Christ to others. In that now Christ makes his appeal through us. It is no longer just one guy like Moses or David or the 70 elders. But now every believer in Christ has the Holy Spirit. And we can preach prophetically about Christ. 
We can proclaim the word of Christ. We can proclaim the word of God to others with the authority of God. Another result of having the Holy Spirit, of being baptized with the Holy Spirit, is that there will be a radical change in our lives. There will be a, a change in our lifestyle. There will be a change in the things that we are devoted to. So if you, if you go back to Acts 2, and sorry that I have you jumping back and forth, but if you go back to Acts 2, After the people believe the message of Peter, in verse 42, notice the things that they devoted themselves to. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. When they received the Holy Spirit, their devotion shifted. They were no longer devoted to idols. They were no longer devoted to themselves, to false understandings of Christ or the Bible. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were eager to hear the word of God preached by the apostles. And even though we don't have the apostles with us today alive, we do have the apostolic teaching with us today. And so as believers, as people who are indwelled by the Spirit, we should be devoted to the apostles' teaching. There is this false dichotomy that doctrine and spirit-filledness do not get along. Where do you get that from? If you are filled with the Spirit, you are going to love the teaching of the apostles. You are going to love the scriptures because they are breathed out by God. They are inspired by the Holy Spirit. They also devoted themselves to the fellowship. They liked being with each other. It was a privilege being with each other. They enjoyed each other's presence. They took any opportunity they have, they had to be with their fellow believers. Like the, the title of, to, to steal the title of an article that I, that I read a while ago, church was their excuse for missing everything else. They wanted to be with the people of God. They wanted to hear the teaching of the apostles. They wanted to be in fellowship. They wanted to break bread and they wanted to pray together. And they had all things in common. That is a direct result of the pouring out of the Spirit. Before we had the Holy Spirit, we did not belong to God. We did not belong to His family. 
We were not a part of his people. But now that he has opened this pouring out of the Spirit to all flesh, and we receive the Holy Spirit, now we are part of God's people. And so our devotion is to him and to his people. We could also spend time talking about the change that happens with the Spirit, with talking about the fruits of the Spirit and the supernatural change that we have in our life. But we would spend a lot of time doing that, and I want to finish with this. One of the important, one of the really important things that Joel is connecting here with the pouring out of the Spirit is the awesome day of the Lord. He connects the pouring of the Spirit as the beginning of the end times. That's, that's what Peter says, right? When, he, when he's quoting this passage, he says, and it shall come to pass in the last day. So basically Peter is saying that the moment that the, the Spirit was poured out marks the beginning of the last days, of the end times. So the end times is not talking about, you know, seven years before the, all of that. The end times is talking about what happens after the Spirit was poured out. And so the connection that Joel is making here in verse 30, chapter, uh, chapter 2 in Joel, verse 30, is that the coming of the Spirit, the pouring out of the Spirit, marks the beginning of the end times. And it marks the fact that the coming of the, of the day of the Lord is going to be fulfilled. He is saying this, coming, this pouring out of the Spirit is actually telling us that there will be a final day in which the Lord will come in judgment. This invasion of locusts that we're experiencing here and this, uh, these wildfires and droughts and famines that we're experiencing are just a foretaste of the coming day of the Lord. And just as the Holy Spirit was poured upon all of us, it is just as sure that the Lord will come in judgment against his enemies. But again, God saves through the announcement of judgment. The fact that he is warning people about the things that are going to happen means that he is a merciful God. The fact that he hasn't come in the final day of the Lord in judgment is because he is a loving and patient God that wants as many people as possible to repent and come to him. Verse 32, and it shall come to pass. So there, Joel says in verse 30 and 31, there will be signs in the heaven. So just like the signs that they saw when the, when the locusts darkened the sun and, and everything that happened, there will be signs in the heavens. There will be signs on the earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So even though the day of the Lord is coming, God in his mercy has provided 
a way out. He has provided an escape. He says that everyone who trusts in his name, more specifically in the Sermon of Peter, everyone who trusts in the name of Jesus will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. And this is interesting, right? Because on the one hand, those who are being saved are those who call upon the name of the Lord. But on the other hand, it really is those who God is calling to himself that he is saving. So that's, you know, just a mind-blowing uh, fact about God's salvation. But I want to leave you with this. For the last time, let's go back to Acts chapter 2. And let's read the call to repentance that Peter makes. Verse 37. Now when they heard the when when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he has just told them, This thing that you're seeing here, this this uh, uh, speaking in tongues and everything that you're seeing here is actually the promise of the, of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon us, fulfilled. And he's telling them, you don't have to be left out. If you repent of your sins, if you are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, you too can receive the Holy Spirit. You too can be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, for the promise is for you. And for, and for your children, and for all who are far off. So Peter is saying this promise of the Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh is not just for you, Israel. It is for you, Israel, and your children, but it's also for everyone else. If you repent and trust in Jesus and are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, you too can receive his Holy Spirit. Everyone whom the Lord calls, notice he's quoting Joel still, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So the implication of the pouring out of the Spirit is that the day of the Lord is coming. And that the only way to receive the Holy Spirit and the only way to receive salvation, to be spared from the judgment of God, is by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus. Is by trusting in Him. Is by trusting in His work. The reason we celebrate communion together is because we are remembering that God's 
wrath was poured on his son on our behalf. When we take of the bread, we remember that his body was broken for us, that he endured the wrath of God upon his body. When we take, when we drink of the cup, we are remembering his blood that was given, that was shed for us. We are remembering this new covenant that he is making with us. And with this new covenant comes the pouring of the Spirit. So let's take some time to think about God's salvation through his son Jesus. Let's take a moment to think about God's love and God's mercy for us in warning us of this coming judgment and in giving us of his Holy Spirit to those of us who call upon the name of his son Jesus. God, we thank you. We thank you for your grace, for your for your love for us. We thank you that even in the warning of judgment, we can see your mercy and your love. We can see your patience. Thank you for pouring out your spirit so that we would be with you. We were created to be in your presence. And thank you, Lord, that now as the church, we are the temple of your spirit. Help us, Lord, to understand what it means to be filled with your spirit. Help us to realize the power that you've given us, Lord. Help us to use the spiritual gift that you've given us for your glory, for the service of others, for the building up of your body. Help us to change our devotion other things and become devoted to you, God, to the teaching of your word, to our fellow believers, to the breaking of bread, to praying. Thank you for the huge privilege that it is to be your ambassador, to speak prophetically into this world and call others to repentance. And Lord, as we, as we take some time to remember your sacrifice, the sacrifice of your son Jesus, as we take some time to think about his body that was given for us and his blood that was shed for us, may we remember his worthiness. May we remember his love and his sacrifice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.